Part 1, Chapter 1 of The Gambler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. Part 1, Chapter 1. An eight-mile drive over rain-washed Irish roads in the quick-falling dusk of autumn is an experience trying to the patience, even to the temper, of the average Saxon. Yet James Milbank made neither comment nor objection as mile after mile of roadway spun away like a ribbon behind him, as the mud rose in showers from the wheels of the old-fashioned trap in which he sat, and the half-trained mare between the shafts swerved now to the right, now to the left, her nervous glance caught by the spectral shapes of the blackthorn hedges, or the motionless forms of the wayside donkeys lying asleep in the ditches. Perhaps this stoicism was the outcome of an innate power to endure. Perhaps it was a merely negative quality, illustrating the lack of that doubtful blessing, imagination. But whatever its origin, it stood him in good stead as he covered the long stretch of flat country that links the south-eastern seaport of Muskia with the remote fishing village of Carrigmore and its outlying district of Oristown. His outlook upon Ireland, like his outlook upon life, was untinged by humour. He had seen no ground for amusement in the fact that he had been the only passenger to alight from the train at the Muskia terminus, and consequently no ground for loneliness in the sight of the solitary vehicle dimly silhouetted against the murky sky that had awaited his coming. The ludicrous points of the scene, the primitive railway station with its insufficient flickering lights, its little knot of inquisitive idlers, its one porter, slovenly, amiable, incorrigibly lazy, all contributing the unconscious background to his own neat, conventional, totally alien personality, had left him untouched. The only individual to whom the picture had made its appeal had been the solitary porter. As he relieved Milbank of his valise and rug on the step of the first-class carriage, an undeniable twinkle had gleamed in his eyes. "'Fine soft night, sir,' he had volunteered. "'Tim Burke is outside for you.' For a second Milbank had stared at him in a mixture of doubt and displeasure. A month's pilgrimage to the ancient Celtic landmark that left him, as it had left many a Saxon before him, unlearned in that most interesting and most inscrutable of all survivals, the Celt himself.' He had surveyed the face of the porter cautiously and half distrustfully. Then he made a guarded reply. "'I am certainly expecting a conveyance,' he had admitted. "'But I have never heard of Tim Burke.' "'Why, this Tim has heard of you,' the other replied with unruffled suavity. "'Isn't it the English gentleman that's going to stop with Mr. Ashlin over at Oristown that you are? "'Sure, Tim told me all about you, and I knew you the minute I set eyes on you. "'Let alone there was no one else in the train.' Without more ado, he had hoisted Milbank's belongings to his shoulder and lounged out of the station. "'Here you are, Tim Man,' he had exclaimed as he deposited the articles one after another under the seat of the trap, with a lofty disregard of their owner. "'Tis a soft night and a long road you have before you. Is it cold, the mare is?' He paused to eye the impatient young animal before him, with the Irishman's unfailing appreciation of horse-flesh. Here, Milbank, feeling that some veiled reproof had been suggested, had broken in upon the monologue. "'I hope I haven't injured the horse by the delay,' he had said hastily. "'The train was exactly twenty-two minutes behind its time.' Then, for the first time, 
the old coachman had bent down from his lofty position. "'I'm sure what harm if it were, sir,' he had exclaimed, voicing the hospitality due to his master's guest. "'What hurry is there at all, so long as it brought you safe?' "'True for you, Tim,' the porter had interjected softly, and seizing Milbank's arm, he had swung him into the trap, precisely as he had swung the luggage a few seconds previously. "'Thank you, sir,' he had murmured a moment later. "'Good night to you. Good night, Tim. Safe road.' and drawing back, he had looked on with admiration while Burke had gathered up the reins and the mare had plunged forward into the misty, sea-scented night. That had been Milbank's first introduction into the district where he proposed to spend a week with a man he had not seen for nearly thirty years. As the trap moved forward, leaving the straggling town with its scattered lights far behind, his thoughts, temporarily distracted by the incidents of his arrival, reverted to the channel in which they had run during the greater part of the day. Again his mind returned to the period of his college career, when, as a quiet student, he had been drawn by the subtle attraction of contrast into a friendship with Dennis Ashlin, the young Irishman whose spirit, whose enthusiasms, whose exuberant joy in life had shone in such vivid colours beside his own neutral-tinted personality. His thoughts passed methodically from those eager early days to the more sober ones that had followed Ashlyn's recall to Ireland, and thence onward over the succeeding tale of years. He reviewed his own calm, if somewhat lonely, manhood, his aimless delving first into one branch of learning, then into another, his gradually dawning interest in the study of archaeology, an interest that, fostered by ample leisure and ample means, had become the temperate and well-ordered passion of his life. The retrospect was pleasant. There is always an agreeable sensation to a man of Milbank's temperament in looking back upon unruffled times. He became oblivious of the ruts in the road and of the mayor's erratic movements as he traced the course of events to the point where, two months before, the discovery of a dozen gold platters and as many drinking vessels embedded in a bog in the county Tyrone had turned the eyes of the archaeological world upon Ireland, and he, with other students of antiquity, had been bitten with the desire to see the unique and priceless objects for himself. The journey to Tyrone had been a pleasant experience, and it was there, under the mild exultation of the genuine find, that it had suddenly been suggested to his mind that certain ancient ruins, including a remarkable specimen of the Irish Round Tower, were to be found on the south-east coast not three miles from the property of his old college friend. Whether it was the archaeological instinct to resurrect the past, or the merely human wish to relive his own small portion of it that had prompted him to write to Ashton, must remain an open question. It is sufficient that the letter was written and dispatched, and that the answer came in hot haste. It had reached him in the form of a telegram, running as follows. Come at once and stay for a year, stagnating to death in his isolation, Ashlyn. An hour later, Another, and a more voluminous message, had followed, in which, as if by an afterthought, he had been given the necessary directions as to the means of reaching Oristown. It was at the point where his musings reached Ashton's telegrams that he awakened from his reverie and looked about him. For the first time, a personal interest in the country through which he was passing stirred him. He realised that the salt sting of the sea had again begun to mingle with the night mist, and judged thereby that the road had again emerged upon the coast. He noticed that the hedges had become sparser, that wherever a tree loomed out of the dusk 
it bore the mark of the sea gales in a certain grotesqueness of shape. This was the isolation of which Ashton had spoken. With an impasse extremely uncommon to him, he turned in his seat and addressed the silent old coachman beside him. "'Has your master altered much in thirty years?' he asked. There was silence for a while. Old Burke, with the deliberation of his class, liked to weigh his words before giving them utterance. "'Is it Mr. Dennis changed?' he repeated at last. Then almost immediately he corrected himself. "'Short is Mr. Ashton, I ought to be saying, sir. But the old name slips out.' Oh, the poor master is gone these twenty-nine years, the Lord have mercy on him. I can never get it out of my head that tis to Mr. Dennis we ought to be looking. More than once, during his brief stay in Ireland, Milbank had been confronted with this annihilation of time in the Irish mind, and Burke's statement aroused no surprise. Has he changed? he asked again, in his dry, precise voice. Burke was silent while the mare pulled hard on the reins and, having regained his mastery over her, he looked down on his companion. "'Is it changed?' he said. "'Sure, why wouldn't he be changed? With the father gone, and the wife gone, and the children growing up? Sure, it is changed, we all are, and going down the hill fast. God help us.' Milbank glanced up sharply. "'Children,' he said. "'Children?' Burke turned in his seat. "'Sure, tisn't to have the old stock die out you'd be wanting,' he said. He'd travel the round of the county before he'd seen the like of Mr. Dennis's children. Thought his girls they are. Girls? Milbank's mind was disturbed by the thought of children. Dennis Ashton with children? The idea was incongruous. Two of em, said Burke laconically. Dear me, dear me, and yet I suppose it's only natural. How old are they? Burke flicked the mare lightly, and the trap lurched forward. Miss Clodagh is turned fifteen, he said. "'and the youngster is going on ten. "'Twas ten year back, come next December, that she was born. "'Sure, I remember it well. "'And six weeks after, Mr. Dennis was following her poor mother "'to the churchyard beyond in Paddockmore. "'The Lord keep us all. "'Twas she was the nice, quiet creature, "'and Miss Nancy's the living stamp of her. "'But God bless us, tis Miss Clodagh that's her father's child.' "'He added this last remark with a force that at the time conveyed nothing.' though it was destined to recur later to Milbank's mind. "'But your master?' the stranger repeated. The momentary diversion of the children had ceased to hold him. Again the vision of Ashlyn, Ashlyn the impetuous hero of past days, had risen intangible, mirage-like, and yet compelling, from his native stretch of rugged country. But Burke made no reply. All his energies were directed to the guiding of the mare down a steep incline. For a space Milbank was conscious of a dangerously accelerated pace. Then the white piers of a large gate sped past them, and he was aware of the black shadow of overhanging trees. Something unusual, something faintly prophetic, and only vaguely comprehended, touched his prosaic nature at that moment. He was entering on a new phase of life. Without conscious preparation, he was to see the world from a new point of view. With a fresh spur of anxious curiosity, he turned again to Burke. "'But your master,' he asked, "'has he changed much? Will I see a great alteration?' For an added space the old man remained mute, while he piloted the trap up the sweep of avenue with that irresistible desire for a fine finish that animates every Irish driver. 
Then, as they spun round the final curve, as the great square house loomed out of the mist, he replied without slackening his vigilance, "'Is it changed?' he repeated half to himself. "'Sure, the Almighty doesn't change a man in thirty year. It stands a reason that the devil must.'" End of chapter 1